All right, welcome to episode five. Today we are going to dive in to the um, second episode where we're actually talking about the process, or well, I should say actually going through the process. The first couple episodes focus mainly on talking about what the process is to set up some expectations and kind of describe it. But And last week we covered kind of the first part of it, um, and now we're going to continue on. So today we're going to talk about one of the goals of today's episode is to begin the process of tying uh, music theory and analysis courses that people take in college and try to tie concepts into those and create some real-world application. And so th- th- that's kind of one of the goals because I often feel like there's a, a gap between you know what people learn in music theory courses and then how that actually helps them in the practice room. And so going forward, that's going to be one of the things I try to target is to make those connections. So for me, having a process with a list I can check off is critical to getting things done in my personal and professional life. I guess part of this method stems from the fact that personally I'm forgetful. It also stems from experiences I had in lessons and teaching students. I would come in and my teacher would ask me about something in the score. Often the question was something I could have and should have known already. There really isn't a good reason not to have defined a French word in the score that indicated information about expression or dynamics in the piece. This is easy to do with Google. By the time I was a grad student, I really didn't have an excuse for not knowing more advanced things, such as uh, how many contrapuntal lines were in the passage, or which one of those lines was the subject. Likely part of the reason I was showing up to lessons without having all my bases covered was an issue of maturity, but I also think it had to do with a lack of habit and not knowing what to look for or when to look for it. I hadn't really trained myself to think about all the different pieces of information I could and should observe about a piece before or while I was physically practicing it. And I don't think I'm alone in this problem. Guitarists often discuss whether expression should be added before or after learning the notes. This suggests that there is some ambiguity within the community about when to think through the, this aspect of playing. It is thus, It thus does not seem entirely unreasonable that a student might come to a lesson not having thought about expression or the different things in the score that provide information about expression, articulation, phrasing, and so on. If a musician subscribes to the notes first expression second mentality, it's even less surprising that a student would come in without having expression words defined, as I did in my lesson. It's the argument of this method that the physical act of practicing is different when expression is added to the notes. Because expression changes the physical motions the body needs to make in order to create that expression, it's the argument of this method, and an argument presented earlier in earlier episodes, that one should think of expression as much as possible before physically practicing a piece and add it to practicing as soon as practically possible. My experience is that teachers often think students should know better when they make mistakes like the one I made with the French vocabulary in my score. The French word is in the score. Why didn't the student look it up? It seems like many teachers just resign themselves to the idea that some students get it and some students never will. That may be true, But I think there are many enthusiastic and potential musicians who don't know what to look for, when to look for it, and what to do with it when they find it. 
Nobody ever explained to them two-bar phrases or walked them through analyzing a piece or taught them how to phrase. I think part of the problem is there is a ton of things to think about and keep track of in a new piece, and it's easy to forget to think about any one of those individual factors. It's also overwhelming for a teacher to remember them all and walk a student through them. This problem is especially true in advanced music like Bach. So part of the goal of this method is to help the reader keep track of everything going on in the music. The idea of this today's episode and several of the episodes going forward is to have a checklist of things you should do or think about when you first look at a piece. This method is not a theory and analysis book, so I won't always thoroughly explain all the vocabulary here. I don't think this means I'm leaving the reader of this method hanging. There are plenty of books on these subjects. One could Google search much of the vocabulary in this list, and a good teacher can also provide an explanation and more context. Some of these concepts, such as two and four bar phrases, are probably easier to understand and hear with an explanation from a teacher with an instrument at hand. This method is focused on where these concepts and vocabulary are applicable in a practice process. In other words, from the time I get a piece of music to the time I perform it, when do I think about certain things such as scales, counterpoint, or words in the score that indicate dynamics? That's why I don't want to provide too many definitions here. There are plenty of method books and treaties that explain counterpoint. What I want to target in this method is when does a performer start thinking about counterpoint during practice so that they make sure the music sounds the way it is supposed to and or the way the performer wants it to. I do present some ideas in the following sections on analysis that may be less familiar even to experienced musicians. In particular, the concepts I present on rhythm analysis are not necessarily original, but they are not ideas that are commonly discussed in method books or some cases even in amongst musicians. In places where I present less common concepts, I will expand on those ideas more thoroughly. The goal of the analysis portion of this method and the lists I present within it are to make sure that all my bases get covered. By bases, I mean all the mental aspects of a piece and what must be thought of before touching the instrument. I also try to present techniques for experimenting and working out some of these pre-physical mental ideas. Having used this method so much in the last two years, I actually find I often skim these lists and don't necessarily need to write everything in the score. It's about making sure I don't miss anything. However, when I first started using this practice method, I wrote in pencil in the score and noted nearly every detail. I will leave this choice mostly to the reader or listener's discretion. Obviously, I can't force anyone to do anything. But I would suggest being obsessively thorough for a couple pieces. Eventually, it is both appropriate and more effective to make mental notes of these different aspects of a piece and skip intensive writing in the score. But wait until observing those details become habit. The reason I can skim now is because I internalized a habit of looking for all these details. One of the goals of this method is to make teaching and lessons more proactive. If a student is working on their first fugue, walk through the analysis portion of this method with the student before they touch the music if you're a teacher. Have the student play the different contrapuntal lines individually on the guitar and give them advice about phrasing. Play the two main contrapuntal lines as duets with the teacher and the student so the student can hear the lines together. Then have the student do the same exercises and analysis on their own with another passage for their next lesson. It's my hope, ultimately, to teach a musician to fish. I can't stress enough two more important points. 
First, one of the things that has to change is the idea that a performer is playing an instrument. I think part of the problem of musicianship is that the idea of the instrument and musicality are not treated separately enough. One needs to know how to make a piece sound like it has phrasing, articulation, and expression before attempting to do so on the instrument. If a performer is not singing a melodic line with correct phrasing or articulation, they probably w don't have the correct sound memorized in their mind for the passage, and they probably can't hear in their mind what correct phrasing sounds like. If the sound of a passage is incorrect in your mind, it will very likely come out incorrect on the instrument. To put it another way, one must learn to play music correctly and then learn to play the music on the instrument. And to be more philosophical, one must enjoy just the music and playing music in addition to and before playing an instrument. So that brings me to my second really important point. Playing melodic lines, bass lines, contrapuntal voices, inner voices in an Alberti bass pattern, really almost any part of a passage individually is an important component of this method. Playing a line with one's voice, another instrument, or the guitar, and doing so to work out expression, articulation, and phrasing is a very powerful tool in the toolbox. If you are not a proficient sight singer or sight reader, playing the lines individually can help you hear the music and work out phrasing, articulation, and expression. I tell my students to put the music on the instrument, not the instrument on the music. If that expression seems a touch nonsensical, I blame the Spanish musicians I've studied with over the years who say things that sound profound but are actually difficult to make sense of. Uh, please let me know if you can guess what playing from the string means. So, having said all that, let's actually dive into the list. So, what I'm about to enumerate here is a list of things that uh, one should think about when looking at a piece and then in individual passages. And I do think it's appropriate to break it up into kind of a macro way of thinking about the piece or a large-scale structural analysis. And then another level of what to be thinking about when you're thinking in terms of each phrase that you're working on. So when we talk about large-scale structural analysis, here are some things I think are important to do. First, as you identify larger sections, phrases, and subphrases, mark these out with letters or Roman numerals, lowercase letters, numbers. So perhaps section one is a capital A, section two is a lowercase a, and section, you know, a subphrase or subsection is, is a number one. For large pieces, count the measures and give every row of measures and every form measures its number so things are easy to refer to. Look for the piece's large structures like binary form, ternary form, ABA, ABA, CADA, AABA, 32 bar form, 16 bar form, 12 bar form, sonata form, rondo, dance forms, and any other type of formal structure that you learn about or can think of. Be on the lookout for 2, 3, 4, 6, 8, and 12 and 16 bar phrases and subphrases. Sometimes identifying this might actually be more a part of the phrase level than the macro level. Some, what I've found is that I often identify certain phrases pretty quickly and then sometimes the division of phrases and subphrases come to me as I practice more. Note any double bar lines in the score as these often separate phrases or sections. Note major key changes. These also mark major changes in sections or phrases in a lot of music. Note if the meter changes. 
This can also mark a significant change in sections or phrases. Note significant differences in texture between sections or phrases. Many theory classes put great emphasis on brainy concepts like harmonic analysis or interval analysis, but many works, such as the Bach solo violin sonatas, can very easily be visibly broken down by their texture. You could do a macro-level analysis of most of the solo violin sonatas simply by noting which part of the score has one, two, and three voices. Make note of any codas, DS signs, um, any repeats. They're major structural components in most music. If your piece is a dance piece, identify its rhythmic patterns, especially where the accent falls in the measure. This can be an instance where listening to an authoritative recording by someone who specializes in the genre can be a huge help. We're going to talk about this later when we get to rhythm analysis. Note when different phrases or sections share, repeat, or vary any of the features mentioned in the above list. If a phrase or section at the beginning of the piece is identical to the one at the end of the piece, there is now one less phrase or section to practice. On the other hand, it may also be a place to change tone color or use an alternative fingering. Learn any unfamiliar language, like musical terms from other languages, signs for dynamics or style, any vocabulary present in the score. So that's the list of macro-level things to think about. Now the next thing is, once I've kind of identified the overall structure of the piece, how do I approach the individual phrases and, and subsections? And I think the first thing to do is note any melodic sequences. Sequences might, might be a component in a phrase with the end of the sequence also being an end of a phrase. So the second section of this analytical process is more at the phrase, subphrase, and, and, and within the section level. So think of the first section of this as being about uh, dividing the piece up into sections. Now we're going to go to the end of the sections and as we practice them, kind of try to identify phrases and pick those apart analytically. So I'm going to go through a list of things that I think are important. One of them, and this is really important in the music of Bach, is to note any melodic sequences. Sequences might be a key component in a phrase, with the end of a sequence also being an end of a phrase. Also note scales being used in a passage such as major, minor scale, harmonic minor, melodic, minor, pentatonic, diminished, whole tone, the modes of the major and melodic minor scales. If any of these scales and the passage can be fingered similar to scale exercises you've done in your technique practice, you now have one less thing to practice, or at least won't have to practice it as intensively. Note any sections of two, three, or four voice counterpoint. A change in the number of voices may mark the end of a phrase or section. Note any large contrapuntal melodic lines. Note all the harmonies in each measure. Your left hand fingers will be influenced by the harmonies implied in the measure. Note any harmonic progressions. This allows you to think and eventually memorize not in terms of individual notes, but instead in terms of large chunks of information in the form of chord progressions. Tying into the previous bullet point about uh, noting harm individual harmonies within a measure or within phrases. If you think about, for example, the music of Bach, many sections of Bach look complicated on the page, but end up just using many of the same open chord harmonies that even beginning guitarists use. And they align pretty close to the fingerings that these beginning guitarists would use. And to add on to that, many of the progressions that Bach uses are really common progressions, such as two five ones or four five ones. So if you put 
those two previous points together, there's a lot of cases where it looks really difficult on the page, but when you actually break it down, the analysis comes in handy because you can start to realize, oh, these are very common chord shapes and fingerings and progressions that I've been working with very regularly. Note any arpeggios that you are familiar with. It is possible you may have worked on an exercise that uses a similar right hand fingering to the arpeggio in the piece you're working on. Note changes in harmonic rhythm or phrase rhythm and phrases and subphrases. This, this may become more obvious after harmonic and rhythmic analysis. Harmonic rhythm often changes between phrases and subphrases. Note any rhythmic figures or patterns that are prevalent in a section or in a phrase or in a subphrase. Note any ornament signs that are indicated or that would be appropriate even when not indicated. Write in the score of the ornament you decide to use. Stealing ornaments from recordings by master performers or performers who specialize in the genre of music you are working on is a great idea for learning how to do more authentic ornaments. Be aware of or write in the appropriate use of the following accents, strong accents, tenudos, brief tenudos, staccato. So to wrap up, I just want to make a couple broad points about the two lists we just talked about. Constantly be mindful of the above points. Sometimes rechecking this list is not a bad idea because some analysis will be obvious right away from looking at the score or singing and playing lines in the score individually. Some analysis may become more clear as you continue through the following sections and spend more time with the piece. It is not a bad idea to do the large-scale analysis portion of the above list before the section and phrase analysis and before physically practicing. In other words, it's a good idea to get a broad concept of the piece as a whole, but don't work out section and phrase level details until you're ready to physically practice. My experience was that if I did too much analysis of the entire piece and too much fingering of the entire piece, I would come back to a section I'd thoroughly analyzed and remember less. I also found myself changing many of the details on, of the different sections as I went through and worked, worked through them on the phrase level and was actually physically practicing. However, if I did my large-scale structural analysis of the piece, I could organize my practice time based on how I sectioned off the piece and then do the section and phrase level analysis or the lower level analysis on passages before I would actually be physically practicing so that the analysis aided my physical practice and memorization. So that's the end of this episode. I'm actually recording in a, so I'm from Minnesota and I'm recording at this place called Jazz Central Studios which is a nonprofit and there's a concert that's going to be here tonight. And very fortunately, I uh, just, I probably finished just before people are going to walk in to start rehearsing. So um, if this one was a little choppy, um, it, then maybe some of my other ones, had, excuse me, I'm a little pressed for time tonight, although there will be some editing on the back end. Um, I, I'm really excited now. I'm, I'm, we're two episodes into the actual process and not just talking about it. Um, and and it's, it's starting to get uh, really cool. And interesting, and it it uh, it's amazing to me when I think about it now. When I first started this, how far it's come, and also how useful it is, at least to me. Um, I I know I go through this line of thinking with each piece. So I hope as we continue, um, people keep enjoying the podcast and find it useful. Have a good day and a good week, as I say at my call center job. <laughs>